So have you ever had someone tell you to turn the music down? Just a little too loud, you need, you need to turn the music down. Or, in the words of philosopher Nathan Feuerstein, have you had somebody say, turn the music up? Just, just turn the music up. Or, are you the person that when you're riding around town and you're trying to find something, you turn the music down so you can see better? Come on, you know who you are, yeah. There's all kind of turning in life. We can turn things up. We can turn things down. We can turn away. We can turn against. But one of the best turnings that exists in the world is to turn toward. To turn toward. A research report on newlyweds said that those who were still married after six years after the wedding, they found that they turned toward one another 86% of the time and newlyweds that didn't make it to year six in other words the marriage fell apart before year six they only turned toward each other 33% of the time now what does it mean to, to turn toward someone in a relationship well my guess is we could outline that in a lot of different ways here's just one way one way that we could say that we're turning toward is that you pay attention to the person instead of just kind of doing your own thing. To turn toward someone means that you spend time making sure that you are dialed into that person, that you're aware of that person, that you're looking toward their needs. To turn toward someone does not mean that when they come and approach you, you say things like, hey, can't you see? Can't you see I'm working here? Can't you see I'm, I'm taking a nap? Can't you see I'm, I'm watching the game? Can't you see I'm watching the Golden Bachelor? You know, can't, you, can't you see that I'm, I'm trying to, to, to practice my putting here? Can't you see that I'm, I'm crushing candy here? Can, can't you see? That, that's not what turning toward means. That's, that's more of a turning against. The research report said that, that spouses that, that made the decision to turn toward one another, created an atmosphere where there was not a lot of conflict. And on the flip side, when you had spouses that made the decision to turn away from one another, it created an atmosphere of, of conflict, of, of harm, of disengagement, of indifference. But those who made the decision to turn toward one another created the kind of energy that, that within the relationship, there was satisfaction, there was joy, there, there was happiness. So, generally speaking, when it comes to relationships in life, are we looking for damage or are we looking for satisfaction? Which, which one would be on our radar that we would want the most? Damage or satisfaction? We continue our series, Navigating Life, where we're considering the, the keys to making good, healthy decisions. Maybe we could say the, the process, in a way, of making good, healthy decisions. And we're looking in the Bible at the book of James. And what James is going to do is he's going to help us see that whether we're talking about relationships or anything else in life, especially the decisions in life, what's most important is what we are turning toward. So what are you turning toward in life with the decisions that you're facing right now some of them big some of them small what, what are you turning toward are you turning toward your gut feelings 
Are you turning towards your family or turning towards your friends? Are you turning toward your, your political ideas and your political opinions? Are you turning toward the, the excellent scientific advice that's coming from TikTok on everything in the world? Where are you turning? What, what is it that you're turning toward? And, and maybe a fair question would be, does it matter? Does it really matter what we're turning toward? Well, it does. And why? Well, let's find out together. We're going to be looking at James chapter 3, verse 14. Our message today is titled, Turning Toward Real. Turning Toward Real. And this is what James says, beginning in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Not the kind of stuff you want on your resume or on your tombstone. So, so what do these mean? Well, we're going to unpack them just, just for a moment to try to just think through them. Bitter jealousy is when you are undone. You are completely put out because somebody got something and you didn't get that something. Why does she get a new car and I have a used car? Why does he get to play golf and, and I have to work? Why do they get lobster and, and I get hot pockets? We, we have these moments, right? We're like, what is it? Why, why is it that, that they get that and, and I don't get that? A heart that's wrapped up with bitter jealousy is often angry and harsh and unkind. Now, what does that look like in real life? Well, in real life, anger and, and harshness and unkindness, it can come across through yelling. It can come across through... Um, kind of sarcastic jabs it can come from cruel words and it can come from really doing a, a number of different things that directly or indirectly create problems in the lives of other people however being angry and being harsh and being unkind can also display itself in using the silent treatment or in indirectly or directly just dismissing the needs of other people. Bitter jealousy is a prickly form of resentment. Prickly meaning that it's like a cactus. It, it sticks you, right? And, and what happens when you get stuck by a cactus? Well, it hurts. And that's what bitter jealousy does. It hurts other people and it also hurts you. What does that mean? How, how can it hurt us? Well, think of it this way. When I was in high school, every year there was just two of us that ran for class president every year. It was me and Rod Kite. I think I may have shared some of this with y'all years ago, but, but Rod and I always ran against each other every year for class president. Rod won freshman year. He won sophomore year. I won junior year. And then he won senior year, senior year he won student body president and, and beat me out. And, and the reason really why he beat me out is because Rod is still a fantastic guitar player. I mean, fantastic electric guitar player. And, and Rod wrote his speech that year, the words to the tune of Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. And when we gave our speeches in front of the whole student body, Rod was there with his guitar and he played and sang his speech to the tune of Sweet Child of Mine. I, it was pretty epic. I'm pretty sure I voted for Rod. You know, I mean, I, it, it, was, it was just that good. 
Now, imagine after I lost that freshman year and that sophomore year that I went home and I made a voodoo doll of Rod. And I went home after school every day and got little pins and stuck them in that little voodoo doll just, just like a cactus would stick and hurt. And then at night, I would sit around, and I would whine, and I would complain that I was a better candidate, and I had better ideas, and I was more fun, and I had cooler parachute pants. You know, that's just, all. I was just whining. Oh, no, no, I, I was better, I was better, I was better. Now, where would that have gotten me? Well, more than likely, it would not have gotten me to the point that I actually decided, hey, I'm going to keep at this, and, and junior year, I'm going to win, and I did. What it probably would have done is I would have dropped out of school and stayed at home playing with voodoo dolls and eating Hot Pockets, you know, and done, done nothing with my life. You see, the reality is bitter jealousy, it, it does this thing on the inside. It, it does something to us. It doesn't just do something to other people. It does something to us. Now, look, we're all going to have moments of jealousy, okay? We are. It, it just happens. But again, pattern, pattern, pattern. The Bible is always directing us toward what is the pattern that we see in our lives. King Solomon said this in Proverbs 14, 30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. Bitter jealousy it, it can rot your bones. It, it can work on the inside. That prickly resentment, it can, it can physiologically do something to you. Years ago, I heard a story about a senior adult lady who was at a church in Oklahoma, and, and she had some type of bone disease. And she was experiencing a lot of pain, and, and she went to see the pastor, and, and they were sitting there talking, and she began to just talk about something. And somewhere in the conversation, it came up that she had this this grudge against this woman in the church. She was just bitter toward this woman in the church. And, and the pastor said, you know, you, you need to call her. You need to go to her. You need to ask for forgiveness. It's, it's not a good thing. And so the woman, after a few days, got convicted and decided to go do that. And as the story went, if I remember right, a few months later, whatever her bone disease was, was gone. Now, that's not to say that every time we confess sin that all of our health things are going to disappear, but it does just kind of illustrate that what Solomon said was true. Bitter jealousy, it hurts us on the inside. Jesse Udall is a wife and mom and in recent years has been an adjunct professor over at Columbia International University. She gave five specific ways that bitter jealousy is destroying us when it's in our lives. First, she said it saps our energy. We are, we're so consumed. We're like on a, a spinning wheel of constantly comparing ourselves to, to other people and other people at work and, and celebrities and other churches or whatever it may be. We're, we're just constantly comparing and it saps all of our energy because we're just on a spinning wheel of, well, they have this and I don't have this and, and on and on it goes. Secondly, she says it makes love impossible. Love, very simply put, is, is wanting and desiring the highest good for someone else. Bitter jealousy would be the opposite of that. You don't want the highest good for other people. You're, you're jealous when good happens to them. Someone described it this way. It's like drinking poison and wanting the other person to die. I mean, the math just, it makes no sense whatsoever. 
Third, she says it's associated with evil things. When you see bitter jealousy and envy in the Bible, it's always in a little list with the worst of the worst things. And we're going to talk about this, this evil a little, little later in the message. Fourth, she says it leads to hate and harm. What happens with bitter jealousy is we begin to think, well, God's shortchanging me. You know, I, I'm not getting something either I want or something I feel like I deserve. And when that happens, we, we begin this, this hateful attitude toward anybody that has good stuff or toward anybody that has what we want. And, and if we're not careful, we'll start having a hateful attitude toward God. Well, God, why don't I don't have this? Why don't I have this? Why, why is my health like this? Why don't I have more money? Whatever it may be. And fifth, she says that bitter jealousy does not lead to wisdom and truth. If, if our hearts are obsessed with bitter jealousy, we will not make good decisions. <laughs> we won't. A heart obsessed with bitter jealousy does not make good, healthy, wise decisions because bitter jealousy and wisdom don't go together. So we don't need to turn toward bitter jealousy. We, we need to turn away. James also says we need to turn away from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is an unhealthy zeal to, to make a name for yourself. It, it has the idea in the, in the original language of, of having a, a party spirit. And that's not like a, a birthday party or a tailgate party. It's, it's more like we would think of, of a political party. In other words, the, the picture here is that you have an unhealthy zeal to beat out your rivals and, and make your way to the top, to make sure that, that you're the one that, that takes over what's happening. And, and a party spirit is something that even when we're doing something wrong, we say it's okay because it's good for the party. You know, it's good, it's good for the agenda, and that's, that's what selfish ambition will do. It, it will begin to redefine truth for us. But James isn't really talking about politicians here. He's, he's actually talking about the church. The, the tense of these verbs are that this kind of stuff was already going on in the church. That there was this selfish ambition that had found its way into the church. And what people were doing was they were creating sides. They were trying to get people on their side on, on different issues. Now, let me be clear. They were trying to get people on their side, not God's side. The goal was not the gospel. It wasn't, wasn't being together for the gospel. It was, hey, I, I need some people over, over here on, on my side with what I'm doing. And, and that's what selfish ambition creates. It creates unnecessary division. It creates unnecessary rivalry, the, the kind of rival that, rivalry that kind of forces people to, to choose sides. At home, it's a, a child choosing one parent over the other. We know this, right? Well, mom will tell me no, but dad will tell me yes, right? I mean, we, we understand that. Or, or it might be a, a parent choosing one child over the other. Well, little Susie makes great grades and little Tommy never does anything right, you know? So, so we understand, we, we see it, this notion of, of selfish ambition and, and choosing sides. At work, at school, on the court, on the field, even in the church. This selfish ambition, it, it creates the kind of rivalry where groups are formed. And they're either formed around a person or they can be formed around an idea. 
And, and those things are formed in such a way that that becomes the driving force behind what's going on. And the actual purpose of whatever the group or organization is actually gets put off to the side because of this one person or this one agenda or these two people or these two agendas. And regardless of, of who and the how and, and however it comes together, this type of selfish ambition, it's destructive. Like it's, it's really destructive. One day Jesus was talking to a group of religious leaders and he repeated to them the words that the prophet Isaiah had said 600 years before. This is what Jesus repeated, Matthew 15, verse 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, this is why selfish ambition is so dangerous, particularly for Christians and believers. Because selfish ambition convinces us, fools us into thinking that whatever it is that we're doing is actually what God wants. It convinces us that our personal opinions or our personal preferences or our personal agendas have to be God's. This is what God wants. This is exactly what God would want to happen but it's rarely, if ever, true when it comes to selfish ambition because selfish ambition is not godly ambition. But look, we're all going to have moments. None of us are perfect. We're all going to have moments where we're, we have some bitter jealousy. We all have moments where we're going to be a little, little selfish in our ambition. But again, the, the question always goes back to pattern. Who are we normally? What happens normally in our lives? Now, does that mean we can't be ambitious? Does that mean we can't run for political office? Does that mean we, we can't try to beat our, our rival sports team? No, it doesn't. There are ways where it comes to, to politics and sports and anything else in life where we can be ambitious in, in such a way that, that we are working with a kind of energy that's for the good of other people, for the, for the good of the entire situation, for the whole group or for the, the whole circumstance. And especially as Christians, there's a way that we can be ambitious, that we're working towards something that would glorify God. We're working towards something that would bring honor to God's name. That's, that's good ambition. And even in sports, in sports, there is a way to be ambitious in sports that, that creates an atmosphere that builds up teamwork and, and discipline and victory without resenting, with prickly resentment, the opposing team. And I would graciously say during college football season, we, we need a little more of that kind of Godward ambition. So there, there's ways to be ambitious. Ambition itself is, is not ungodly. Selfish ambition is ungodly. Ambition is not ungodly. Selfish ambition is ungodly. And even jealousy is not ungodly. In fact, the, the word for jealousy it comes from this word that means zeal, zealous. In fact, the Bible says in Exodus that our God is a jealous God, meaning that he has a pure and just and right zeal to be worshiped as the one true God over all the universe. So it's not that ambition is evil. It's not that jealousy is evil, but bitter jealousy 
is evil and, and selfish ambition is evil because they're not from God. They are prickly, they are sticky, they are damaging, they are harmful. And James gives us a much deeper reason why we as Christians need to turn away from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Look at the next part of verse 14. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition will make you a, a liar. What does that mean? Well, the word he uses here is, is arrogance. Now, arrogance is an unhealthy zeal to bring attention to yourself or an unhealthy zeal to say that you are the owner of all the right answers. <laughs> yeah. We don't have anybody like that in our family, right? My mom has always joked, well, you know a Welsh is always right. I mean, it happens a lot, you know? I mean, I don't know what to tell her. We all have those, those moments where, I, well, my answers are the right way. I, I know that it's right. But the sense of, of arrogance here that James is pointing out, it's, it's boasting and bragging that your ways are the wisest ways. That whatever you say, everybody else should follow. No, nobody should even question. And James says that if you're like that and you profess to be a Christian, meaning if, if that characterizes the normal ways that you deal with everybody in life, and you profess to be a Christian. He said the math is, is off. There's something wrong with the math. In fact, the language here in this phrase is where we get our word hypocrite. The word hypocrite is, is pointing out, and James is pointing out, that bitter jealousy and, and selfish ambition and, and arrogance, if, if, what, if that's what you're known for the most, it means that in some way you're not for real. That there's, there's something different about you. You're, you're saying one thing, you're doing another. You, you have a fantastic, really good-looking mask that you wear on Sunday mornings that says that you're a saint, but the people that have to deal with you all the time know that you live like the devil. This is the, the picture that we see throughout the Bible. It's not just in, in these words from James. So what does this hypocritical arrogance look like in, in real life? Here's just some snapshots. A person like this is overly or unnecessarily competitive. Okay, again, competition is not evil, but, but overly or unnecessarily competitive. They love to argue. They always want to voice their opinion. They are consistently criticizing and complaining almost everything. They do not like for other people to succeed, and they have a my way or the highway attitude. Now look, all right, we all have moments where all of those things can be in our life. Again, okay, we can cut ourselves some slack. We are still sinful people. But again, pattern, 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 pattern. I'm a Christian, but the things of Jesus are rarely seen. These are the things that are, are often seen. That, that's the picture that we always see in Scripture. So if, if that is a picture of someone who is hypocritically arrogant, what's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of a person who's bitterly jealous? What's the opposite of a, a person who is selfishly ambitious? Well, this is how Jesus said it, Mark chapter 9. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, if we're honest, those words from Jesus sound like the exact opposite of what everything in life tells us to be, our culture and our society this, this is not really what we normally hear. And yet there it is, this very clear, simple advice from the greatest ruler, the greatest rescuer, the greatest redeemer ever. The king of kings 
And the Lord of Lords says that in God's economy, greatness is found in someone who is a humble servant. Let me repeat that as we head into election time, as we head into football season, as we head into PTA meetings, as we head into whatever else it is that we're in life in the weeks ahead. Jesus said that in God's economy, the greatest person is the person who is a humble servant. Ron Blue said this, a truly wise person does not seek glory or gain. He is gracious and giving. Not glory or gain, but gracious or giving. So each of us, just for a second, let's, let's just take a little, little test of our own hearts and minds. Which one do we see most in our life? Or, or let's just be fair, which one do we see more in our life? Is there a, a greedy desire for glory and gain? Or is there a desire to be gracious and giving along the lines of exactly what Jesus has called us to do? And might I add, what Jesus exampled when he walked on earth. A wise Christian is not perfect, okay? None of us are. But a wise Christian is going to strive to fight the good fight of turning not toward bitter jealousy and not toward selfish ambition, but, but turning away. And turning toward having a faith that is real, not just a profession of faith, but a true possession of faith. And why should we strive for a fight like that? Why, why does it demand our time? Well, James tells us in verse 15, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Yeah, he went there. James says that bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, this, this sense of arrogance, that it is natural and earthly. Now, this isn't like, you know, natural, earthly, organic food that you can get at Earth Fair or Whole Foods. Okay, that's, that's not what it's talking about. This is talking about something that is not supernatural. It is not heavenly. And it is not the kinds of attitudes that come from God. The word for natural here is where we get the word psyche. What is your psyche? Well, your, your psyche, simply put, is, is kind of our natural animal instincts. We could even say it's, it's the way our mind works apart from God. Here's a, just a couple of examples of, of how our, our natural psyche can, can get us in trouble. Uh, Ron Daniel says this, If I'm angry at someone, my psyche says, Oh, you don't need them. It's okay to hate them. They're the source of your pain. Or he says, When I have a personality problem, my psyche will tell me, Well, find out where it all began. See if there's someone you can blame it on so you don't have to take responsibility. See, our psyche is full of natural wisdom and, and what we need is supernatural wisdom now that doesn't mean that all natural wisdom is evil god has been very gracious and and he gives doctors and nurses and law enforcement and military and politicians and scientists and all other kind of people in life uh, the ability to learn and, and grow in wisdom wise things that help us in everyday life but what james is asking is what are you feeding your psyche what is it that you're, you're feeding your heart and your mind the most? Are you feeding your heart and mind a lot of unique natural wisdom? 
Are you feeding your heart and mind a, a lot of common sense? Or are you feeding yourself the wisdom of God? James says that bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, this sense of arrogance, it's, it's earthly and it's natural and it's demonic. Demonic. He goes there. It's not just bad etiquette. It's not just bad etiquette to be bitterly, jealousy, bitterly jealous or selfishly ambitious. It's actually demonic. It's not from God. If these things, if this arrogant zeal to have your way and to criticize everybody who won't go along with you, if, if that's the, the most zealous part of who you are, if the most consistent part of who you are, James is saying that if we're like that, we're living like a child of the devil. We're living more devil-like than, than God-like. You don't want to do that. <laughs> that's, that's not a good thing. You know? It's not a good thing for us to be that way. And I can promise you, if we're thinking that way, we will not be making good decisions. Even if everybody around says we're making good decisions, if we are functioning in such a way that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance is driving who we are, we will not make good, wise decisions. In fact, it doesn't take a whole lot of stretching for us to look even at our political landscape, not just in this country, but in the world. And is there any doubt that we are where we are in so many different ways in culture and society, whether it's politics or school or work or anything else, when the demanding traits that we seem to promote and even affirm the most are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance? We overlook them as long as the finished product is something that's, that's good for us. It's not good for us. Everything in the Bible says it's not good for us because it's not from God. Or likewise, why are we so stressed out? Why are we so anxious? Why are we so angry? Why are we so afraid? Why are we so put out and frustrated with so many things in life? Why are we struggling so much to, to make simple decisions? Why is there so much panic over making decisions? Could it be that what we are feeding ourselves is the wrong diet? We are feeding ourselves on an, an endless supply of news updates and sports updates and crime updates and weather updates and, and an endless binge of, of YouTube videos or, or social media streams. We, we are filling ourselves with all the things that take us away from what we actually want the most, and that is joy and happiness and peace and contentment and satisfaction. And, and those things can only ultimately be found in God. So again, for all of us, just a moment of, of test for ourselves. How much time are we spending feeding ourselves the truth and the glory and the majesty and the love and the grace and the mercy of the things of God as compared to how much we're feeding ourselves all the other things in life. And look, we're all guilty of it. We're, we're all guilty of it. In, in some way, shape, or form, we, we have something that we're addicted to, something that, that we look at and, and listen to more than anything else. Well, whatever's filling our minds, according to Jesus, it's filling our hearts, 
and it'll be seen in our attitudes and our actions. It'll be seen in our demeanor, and it will be seen in our decisions. Our decision-making is completely wrapped up in what we're filling our minds with. And if it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance, that's what's going to come out, and that's how we're going to make decisions. Now, is there a way to flip the script? Is there a way to, to not make decisions that are full of, of so much bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance? Is there a way to not be a hypocrite? Well, there is. There's a way for us to do that. And it comes from focusing on and desiring what is real. You see, every single one of us, we, we have decisions that we have to make. Um, all of those decisions for all of us are in the future. Some of you have a decision you need to make right after church. Where are you going to go to lunch, right? I mean, that's a big decision. I mean, it is for me. I mean, I'm hungry. So, you know, we, we have decisions, and they may be five minutes from now. They may be 15 minutes from now. They may be five days from now. They may be five weeks from now. They may be five years from now. They may be 50 years from now. But, but all of us, every single one of us, we have decisions to make in life, and all of those decisions are in the future. The last book of the Bible is an incredible vision of divine-inspired messages that God gave to John while he was on the Isle of Patmos, a, a Greek island. And one of the messages that John writes about is a message about Jesus of Nazareth. Most of it is pointing toward Jesus, but there's one particular message, and, and it's all kind of in one sentence, and it, it's really amazing because in this one sentence, it tells us the historical truth of who Jesus is, of what he's done, and of why that historical truth and that historical reality matters for the future. So it's a, a message about the future, but it's found in, in the truth of history, the truth of the moment, the truth of Jesus. And the message goes like this, Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. So there's this scroll in the future, and only Jesus is the one who can open the scroll. And the scroll is the full and final will of God for the rest of eternity. We, we have Jesus being the only one who can open the scroll. The next part. For you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. This is one sentence speaking of what Jesus did in history and what he's going to do in the future. The language here is, is prophetic. We, we call this a apocalyptic type of writing here. But if, if you take all that and just put it on hold for a second, and this, this incredible vision just kind of put some of the language on hold for a second. I, I want you to listen to what Jonathan Parnell asked about this verse. He said this, if you put that on hold, do you believe that the Jesus here referred to is a real person? Not, you know, not a Harry Potter, Narnia type of book. That's, that's not what Revelation is. Oh, look at this fantastic, you know, look at this language. That, that, that's not it. Is this a real person? Do you believe that, that the person described, the one whose glory 
shall never end. The one who we sang, crown him with many crowns because his reign will never stop. Do you believe he's a real person? He goes on. Can you picture as a possible scenario you wrapping your arms around the shoulders of this man? Can you feel what it would be like to hug him like you would hug your dad? Do you believe that you could, with your fingers, trace the blistered scars on his hands? And then, as clear as you've ever heard anything before, listen as he speaks to you. He looks at you with his eyes, and he talks to you. He says your name. He says that he loves you. He says that he has all authority in heaven and earth and that he'll never, ever leave you. Do you believe that Jesus is real? Not not just the amazing, incredible language that he's worthy to open the scrolls, that he's he's been slaughtered and he's, he's purchased the souls of men and women and boys and girls, but, but do you think he's, he's real? Because if Jesus is real, then it changes the decision you're facing tomorrow. No matter how big or how small, if you believe that Jesus is real, he affects your decisions. The reality of Jesus Christ impacts the way we think. It impacts the way we decide. And if Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, that means turning toward him and turning away from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and and arrogance. It means that turning toward Jesus means that suddenly you now in the big and small decisions have a unique energy. You have a unique drive. You have a unique confidence that comes with every decision you will make. Why? Why would you have unique energy and unique confidence, unique peace, unique calm? Because, dear friend, in your heart of hearts, you are holding to the truth that Jesus is real. And if he's real, that changes everything. Because no matter what happens... No matter what happens in our heart, in our mind, no matter what happens in our health or at work or at school or at church or at home or anywhere else, what we have in Jesus is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. So because that's true, let's turn down the sound of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance that is plenty loud everywhere we go. And let's turn up the sound of the one that will never, ever leave us or forsake us or fail us. Let's turn up the sound of the one who will give our hearts its greatest desire joy and happiness and goodness forever. Jesus is real. So let's turn our hearts toward what is real.